Okay, Shalom Uvracha friends, thank you so, so much for joining. Mamish, always a privilege to be able to learn with you, and I appreciate your time and um, this opportunity that we get to really explore Rabbi Nachman's teachings together from all around the world, but all together in heart and mind, trying to get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, trying to utilize the advice and the guidance and the clarity of the tzaddikim to, uh, to really maximize our lives, which we're going to be talking a whole lot about tonight with the help of the Master of the World. So we'll jump right into it. I'm going to share my screen. And we are going to begin. Okay, so if you remember last week, or was it? No, it wasn't last week. I was, I was sick in bed with the flu last week. So it must be two weeks ago, maybe even three weeks ago. I don't remember now. But it's been a while and it's a chaval because we had built up so, such excitement for Sicha Nun Aleph, which is like, you know, the essential core heart of Sicha Saran. And then we had to take a break. We had only learned the first couple of words. So we're going to learn, we're going to review those words tonight, that opening statement. We're going to jump into the teaching from Reb Nassin and Likuti Alachas. That's a pretty lengthy teaching that we wanted to get to last time, but there was, you know, no way we were going to get to this. So we're going to try to get through this piece from Likuti Alachas tonight. And then if we have time at the end, we'll move a little bit further in Sichas Ranun Aleph and try to learn a teaching from Reb Chaim Vital and Shari Kedusha, all with the help of the Master of the World. Okay, so let's jump back in to Sichas Nun Aleph. And we begin at the beginning. Once again. And the tzaddik says like this, This world is in a klum, is really nothing at the end of the day from the most broad-minded standpoint, from the most eternally oriented perspective, this world just doesn't, doesn't cut it. You'll remember we spoke so much about the exacting nature of this word, limshaych. Why did Rabbi Nachman use this word? He could have said this world is, like Chazal say, a prazdar. It's a hallway to get to, right? The track in the hall of Olam Haba, of a higher you know, way of existence or mode of existence. Rabbi Nachman uses this word, rak lim shaykh, to be drawn toward the tachlis hanitzchi, and we explained at length that there are two contrasting energies in creation. There is the energy of what's called the koach hamoshech, the power that draws, and we liken this to our experience of gravity upon earth. And then there's the koach hamachriach, the force that pushes away. And the essential distinction that we pointed out between them is that while the koach hamachriach is only momentary, because you can only throw something so far with your hand outside or compel it away from the field of gravity, but it'll only last so long. Eventually, when that force runs out, what's going to happen? It's going to need to be drawn back to the ground, into the natural, eternal draw of the koach hamoshech, of that force of gravity, which is, all, which is ultimately eternal. And we mentioned that these two forces are at work all the time on us. And sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that the koach hamachriach is actually the koach hamoshech, that we're actually being drawn towards certain tendencies, behaviors, things we feel that we want, things we feel to be drawing us toward them, but the truth is they're not. They're only there to compel us away from what is essentially and eternally drawing upon our neshamas, and that is Kedusha. And that is 
higher elevated consciousness. That is the development of our neshamas, the revelation of our souls within us, living in alignment with our true identity, the true mission for which we are in this world, a completely different set of ideals. The Torah and the mitzvahs and dveikos and Torah avodah gemilis chasadim that are all there for the purpose of allowing us to become a little bit more human, a little bit more elevated. And that is ultimately what's truly drawing us. And this is what Ibn Ahmed says here, in the context of understanding this distinction between Koyach HaMoyshech and Koyach HaMachriach, then Ha'olam HaZeh in a klum. Because this world and everything that's associated with corporeality, physicality, the Yitzhahara, etc., etc., body, right, all of that is the Koyach HaMachriach that seeks to prevent us or that is in the world built into existence to serve as that force that's pulling us away, that's seeking to distract us from what essentially we want and what essentially we're here to accomplish. And therefore, ha'olam hazeh, which is koach ha'machriach klum, rak limshoich elatachlis hanitzri. That's why we're in this world, to allow ourselves to simply desist, like we mentioned last time, to give in to the natural flow that's compelling us toward the true tachlis, trying to live already a futuristic life, to already begin living on that plane where HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not hidden, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is present. I had an experience today, it was interesting, I plan to write about it on Facebook a little bit later, but um, I was sitting and learning in a, in a local shul for a second seder where I learned, in a shtibel, a vizhnitz, it's like a minion factory, and the room where I was learning was right off the parking lot. So there's like the regular main entrance where you can walk up a bunch of stairs and you go into like the main entrance. But there's a door that's just right off the parking lot. It's the basement of the shul. And that's where I like to sit. And I usually sit there for, you know, the latter part of my day. And I get to learn in Yerushalayim. And it's the sweetest, most incredible thing that I can only bless upon each of you. Mamish Ganeiden. So anyway, I was sitting there and I heard a sound that sounded like, because in my mind, I was trying to think like, what is that? It was steadily getting louder and louder and louder. And it was like this hum, it was like, you know, that started off pretty quietly, and then it was growing stronger and stronger. And the only thing that my mind could think of was that it was like a truck that was, you know, sort of backing closer and closer and closer to the door. That's what it sounded like, because it, it uh, you know, that, and that's, what my, that's where my brain went. We, you know, we were near a parking lot. What other sound might that be? And then I turned around after like a couple of minutes where I was like, okay, that's what that is. And I like sort of, I put that away because I knew what it was. You know, it was a truck outside and I turned around and in fact, somebody had brought an urn of water down into the basement because the kolel had moved down there. I don't know what was going on upstairs. And he wanted to make, you know, coffee available to them. And it was the bubbling water of the urn that sounded like the truck because my mind couldn't think of what could possibly, what that sound could possibly be. And I said, it must be a truck outside. And it turned out to be something that was two tables behind me, very much inside. And I thought to myself in that moment, I said, isn't this me in relation to how I considered Hashem before Hasidus and after Hasidus? I think before Hasidus, like I heard this noise, meaning to say Hashem was like somewhere in the parking lot. He was somewhere out there making some noise from afar, unrelated to me, not in proximity, and sort of being mashkiach on the world from a distant realm. And then I think Hasidus really 
woke me up to the awareness that no, 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 HaKadosh Baruch Hu is two tables behind you. He's in the room. The sound that you hear is not an echo from a distant place. It's very much present, you know, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like we like to say, is not hidden from the world. He's hidden in the world. And that was a paradigm shift. And so that's ultimately what this whole thing is. To already begin living on that futuristic perspective and plane of consciousness where Hashem is in the room, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is here, He's a vibrant reality, and we have to shake ourselves out of the reverie of what we consider to be normal adult life back into that youthful wonder, that youthful awe, what we refer to as the princess of soulful connection, feeling, being mind blown by nature, which is not natural at all, like we mention so often. That is the tachlis, and olam hazeh is enoi klum. That's what we had learned last time. Let's take a look at this piece from Lakuti Alachis in Prairie Verivia, Gimel Aisyates. And we'll try to get through this. As you can see, it's a little bit of a lengthier piece, so it might take us till the rest of the time. But let's try to, to, to explore this piece always as we like to do, hopefully, in a balanced, nuanced way without jumping to conclusions, but really taking it as a, as a all, as a whole piece, and really trying to listen, not even to the meaning of the words, but to the, to the, to the melody of the words. What is Rav Nassim trying to communicate to us in the points that he's making here. And so Rav says the following, He says those that are epikarsim, those that are koifrim, those that are heretical in their perspectives toward the Torah, in their perspectives toward uh, or upon objective reality, the concept of a creator, they refuse to turn their minds to the objective truth that this world is created and that this world has a purpose and that there is a capital C captain running this ship and every detail uh, and detail of details is planned out, is completely part of a, of a divine master plan. They refuse to turn their minds to that MS. The Enam Reutzim Lishmoya, and look how this muscle that I gave is exactly aligned with what Rav Nassim is saying here. It's phenomenal. I wasn't even thinking about that. He says they don't want to hear ki imbechinas kol hachoyzer ba'atzmai. They only want to listen to an echo, to an echo of the messages that a Kaddish Baruch Hu means to communicate to us. And in the actual articulation, you can hear it. You can hear that it's Hashem. But if we're not listening to the actual speech and all we suffice is to settle on the echo of that, then the echo becomes completely divorced from the essential communication and you start to think that nature is just natural. Meaning to say they hear a sound, but they think it's coming from outside. They think it's, they think it's something else. They completely and entirely misinterpret what that sound is. Something we also say oftentimes is that Hashem is not silent. HaKadosh Baruch was the loudest being that exists. Because Ein Oedem And that means to say that every sound that we hear is essentially Hashem speaking to us. And the question is whether we are going to be open to perceiving it as such. So he says, these kinds of people, Einam Reitzim L'Shmoya, Ki Yimbechinas Kol HaChoyzer Ba'atzmai. They don't turn their minds and they don't focus on and they don't open their hearts 
to the possibility that there exists the essential source for the sound that they hear. And they rather spend all their time focusing on what Reb Nassim refers to based on Ariya Kadesh as the Kalachoyzer. They just obsess over the echo. What's that echo? Of course, the concretized articulation of a Kodesh Baruch Hu as it manifests in the laws of nature and the laws of physics and the laws of society as we experience it at this current moment in history. Just the things that we consider to be normal and what life is from a secular viewpoint and what we're expected to do and what's normal and what's not normal. All of this is the echo. And an echo is the product of an essential voice. Now in this mushal and the nimshal, we understand what the echo is. So what is the essential voice that they're missing? And the essential voice that they're missing, of course, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's voice, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's call, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu trying to reach us, trying to contact us, trying to give us space to discover Him. That's the original call. But all they suffice with, and all they obsess over, as we're going to learn now, is the echo. So again, they don't turn their minds, to believe, and to appreciate, to know, where did this echo come from? What is this place and why? And that essential life force that's giving life and giving vitality, vibrancy to everything. And he says, this is the foolish way. Most of them don't know better. We have to daven for the world. Not so much to look down upon, but to daven for. But this is the way of these kinds of individuals. And the philosophers. They're intelligent people. And they channel their intellect for a productive purpose. But the intelligent, productive purpose for which they're using their intellect is something that's going to be essentially limited to the subjective experience of the physical creation. Because that's where our minds operate, in physical brains ensconced within physical skulls under the constraints of time and space. And so in as much as we're going to utilize our intelligence, only within the realm of what we consider to be perceivable and perceptible, it's going to necessarily be channeled and limited just to the natural world around us, which is exactly how they spend their time. What the nature of nature is, what color is, and sound, and all the different distinctions between the categories of creations, what it is at a rock, and a plant, and an animal, and a human being, with distinctions, but again, based on our perception, not based on the objective revelation that comes from a realm beyond time, a realm beyond space, that's going to enable us to tap into insights that are far more than our human minds can ever access on their own. To analyze what is the nature of different facets of existence. Why does this creation look this way? And, and, and what's the nature of this kind of insect? And, this, and how do you classify this new plant that they discovered in some place? All these different chachmas. To understand the nature of what each and every creation holds 
in the sense of being able to heal us, in the sense of being able to contribute to our quality of life. What is sound? Sound waves, understanding how sound works, how light works, what the different rules are in nature, in physics, in, in mathematics, that actually go ahead and allow for certain things to work and operate in certain ways. All different kinds of noises, and all their different categories, and what happens when you combine this color with that color, what does it produce, and why, etc., etc. We're going to talk about this now. How to invent technologies that are going to be able to go ahead and produce different kinds of music. All the different wisdoms of this worldliness. Every word is important here. Sometimes you think when you're learning Lakuta Maran, you get a feeling that every word is of infinite import and importance because the Torahs are generally shorter and so it starts here and it ends there and so every word's got to pack a punch. Sometimes in Urnasan, because the discourses go on for 40, 50 pages, you start to feel as if, you know, maybe it's not so significant, but it's mamish not true. You have to be medayik in Lakuta Alachis the same way that you have to be medayik in Lakuta Maran. Don't be fooled by the length. It's not, it's, it's not something different. Rabbi Nassim said, and we mentioned this, I believe, in the past, I'm sure, that he didn't need haskamas. He didn't even try to get haskamas, approbations, on Lakuta Alachas because he said, whatever approbations Rabbi Nachman got apply to my teachings as well because this is Rabbi Nachman's voice. This is not, Rabbi Nassim wasn't a separate entity. He was the moon that reflected the light of the sun that was Rabbi Nachman of Breslev. So we have to be medayik every word. Don't be fooled by the length. Every word is important here. Kalim rabim letoy eles ha'olam. This production of inventions that are letoy eles ha'olam that do in fact improve the nature of life, improve our quality of life. So Rabbi says that that there is a toeles in this, and he's not denigrating these kinds of studies in and of themselves because they are productive. Aval, and here's the main word, kol chakirusam, chakirasam hu hakol But essentially, even though there's going to be use in these wisdoms, look, I mean, we don't have to look any further than the amount of comfort with which we live, which is ultimately founded on the development of technologies throughout history. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a sicha, I don't know if we learned it yet or we still will learn it, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu puts new chachmas in the world. And the technologies enable us to do this, that I should be sitting at my dining room table in Yerushalayim and all of us around the world can join together to learn something in an online context is a pella. I mean, it's a, it's a total wonder. How difficult would it be to describe to our great-great-grandparents what it is that we're actually doing? Forget about the actual fact of our sitting here together in this virtual space, but I'm sure they'd want to know, well, how does this work? And guess what? I can't speak for you, but I wouldn't be able to explain it to them. And that's really crazy. It means that we're using something all the time that we have no idea 
how this actually is possible. And not only that, we get frustrated when it doesn't work. Like we expect it to work. When the Wi-Fi doesn't work, we get totally frustrated. What are you getting so frustrated about? You, you, you don't you don't begin to understand how this thing works in the first place and so there is certainly to ls to all of these kinds of inventions the amount of torah that's able to be spread using you know the internet uh, cars and for sure planes trains but certainly planes are essentially kvitas haderech you know in our time we used to think i guess as children that kvitas haderech would need to mean that you know the sun stands still and we get five more hours in our day what do you think is happening when you take a flight to israel instead of a six-month ship like you would have had to do 200 years ago that's kvitas haderech that means to say you just saved six months of your life that would have had to been have been spent in a, in, a, in, a, in a cramped quarters without being able to do anything and not be productive, we have so much more time, so much more time than any generation before us outside the medicinal fact that the lifespan continues to increase. And so it's very likely, and I bless us all, that we and our children, certainly and our grandchildren for sure, are going to easily live into the 90s, easily. I mean, that's just the statistics. Outside of that, the time that we have is remarkably expanded in relation to what previous generations were working with just because of the nature of things or of the amount of time that things took and so for sure the toeles is tremendous but the question is those individuals that are investing themselves toward these technologies which again in and of itself is not a bad thing on the contrary we see how much good comes from it and more often than not, with rare exceptions, these individuals are making the tremendous mistake, which we benefit from essentially, but they make the tremendous mistake of being so interested in the nature of this world because that's all they believe in. And that's where they're going to invest the overwhelming majority, if not all of their time, and become obsessed with, and that is an issue. That is an issue. And the message that sends is an issue. And ultimately, and this is the kicker, and we're gonna to get to this in a minute, that fact is going to necessarily be embedded within the technologies themselves. And so that means to say, there's going to constantly be the opportunity to utilize the otherwise power of technologies that can be elevated and used in a wonderful way because it's founded on the consciousness of cold hard science, facts, scientific method, we don't believe anything other than which we can test and anything that we can't test doesn't exist and a refusal to look into the past for value to believe only in progress, progressivism that truth is only in the future and only being revealed and that the past is shameful and archaic and needs to be removed from because that's an essential perspective that sits at the root of so much of this wonderful technology, it's going to show up in the technologies in the sense that there's going to be zero limitation with any mind or concern for how these technologies are going to affect the morality of society, the mental health of society, the creative human nature of society, 
society in and of itself, interpersonal relationships, etc., etc. There's no consideration for the ways in which these technologies are going to affect th these things because again, they're founded upon a perspective that ignores the, the fact that any of these things should matter in the first place. And so a Facebook is a wonderful thing, but is a metaverse going too far? Right, if you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like technologies, video games might be great, you know, to take an hour off, maybe if it's an appropriate thing in an appropriate way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But is entering into an immersive VR experience completely and entirely disjointing ourselves from the reality of even this world? It's like a sub world they're trying to drag you into. Is that a good thing? Objectively, is that a good thing? Well, in their mind. It's making them more money. And so that's a good thing because to them, this worldly prestige and this worldly success is the main thing. And so it's not so much about what's objectively good for people and whether we can put restraints on certain technologies, wonderful as they are, but perhaps we're going too far because again, it's not founded upon a good spirit, you know, that's essentially trying to improve humanity in the sense of not just improving the, the quality of our lives, but the very nature of what it is to be human. And that's a very deep nakuda we're saying here. I, I don't know if I'm getting it across clearly. I'm trying my best, but this is a very, very crucial nakuda. And Reb calls them out. And Ramnasan essentially says, thank you for a Facebook, right? In different words, thank you for a WhatsApp. Thank you for cars. Thank you for planes. But no thank you to the distraction and the distractive nature of a working this world that Mimela is going to prevent us in so many different ways from reaching beyond this world to look toward a salvation that comes from beyond. So no thanks on that. And calling out an essential misunderstanding that sits at the root of so much of the obsession with this world that ultimately produces things that are to'eles la'olam, like Ernestin says but are founded upon a shaky foundation. So let's read this again. They're rooted completely in a world that's fleeting. It is just fleeting. And we think in the present moment that there's so much time but the chevra maybe here even that are a little bit longer down the road can tell us, right? And know for themselves just how quickly time passes you by. It just goes. Keheref I in this world is nothing. It's a blink of an eye. This person devotes his life to coming up with a telescope that could look very far. And this one comes up with a with a, a kind of invention that enables a person to listen and to hear sounds from a very distant place. And says Rav Nassan again, And again, the words are precise. Not that there's no to'eles for us in their service and in their commitment and devotion to what they were working on. And we have to be grateful that we have light bulbs and we have to be grateful that we have phones and we have to be great, etc., etc., all the way down the line. Certainly in the world of medicine, which connects to what we spoke about in Nunal, in, in, in Sichanun, we have to be grateful for that. But my Yisrin la'adam b'chalzeh. Is there ever any focus on helping mankind develop? These are two different things. Not helping mankind be more comfortable, 
not helping mankind live better lives in an external sense, but my Yisrael Adam How about channeling at least a portion of that intelligence and ingenuity and creativity into coming up with ways to improve the essence of what it is to be a person? What we refer to as the princess, not only the six sons, not only the vessels, but the R, the inside. Not only the echo, but the call itself that's producing this echo. How is this going to help us in the sense of our eternal obligations and to focus on uh, the world where we're going, not just the world where we're found? Trust me. And of course, he's a thousand percent right. You can live a chayim toivim beliadiyas hakelim halalu without any knowledge of these things. A chayim toivim. And it depends again what your definition of chayim toivim is. Because to a person that's rooted only in a this worldly perspective, the statement is patently false on its face. You can live a chayim toivim, really? In this world, begashmis, without heat, without running water? Without lights, without electricity, without cars, and all the way across the board, just the things, technologies that we utilize as normal in throughout the course of our daily lives that only maybe 100 years ago, 150 years ago, just didn't exist at all. You really mean to tell me that I can live a better life in a Gashmiya sense without these things? It's not true. It's not true. But of course, Rav Nassim, is when he says Chaim Toivim, he's speaking about a different kind of Chaim Toivim. And it is a fact. It's a fact. And the secular world is beginning to come around to this. And they're even building it into the phones themselves because of, of you know, the, the demand on the part of people for limitation. You can put your phone into a mode where it's just, you know, they're that bedtime mode and you know turns gray and you know you can you can set these limits. But it is true that the really good life means a life of development, productivity, true accomplishment, true connection, true depth, inwardness, development, elevation. Such a life is going to very oftentimes be exactly in contrast to Achayim Tovim bimuvan hagashmi. Achayim Tovim in a sense of a, of a this-worldly Chaim Tovim. Oftentimes, those two things stand head-to-head. And usually, it's the people that don't grow up surrounded by all of these different kinds of things that are far better communicators, that are far better listeners, that are far more patient, etc., etc. And th- so the humanity becomes developed in relation to our separation from the development of the technological ambition to improve our lives in a gashmiistic sense. The quality of life is better. Even though on the one hand, the quality of life is worse in a certain sense, but the qu- that, that's the quality of the quantity of life. That, that, that's the, you know, the inside of the external. The true quality of life is oftentimes in a far higher realm 
when people don't have access to the destructive capacities of technology because we don't know where to draw the limits. And the companies, you know, mitchila don't have any limits because there's no limit to greed and therefore there's no limit to whatever they're going to create that they can draw you in. And you know what else there's no limit to? The Yetzirah. There's just no limit to it. It'll never stop. It'll never ever stop. We'll never be satisfied. And so that's what Rav is saying over here. Ki ba'olam hazeh yecholim lichyos chayim toivim baliyadiyas hakelam halalu. Maybe a more difficult life, but you know what Chazal said? And about what kind of a life Chazal proclaimed the word ashrecha? You know where that terminology comes? Ashrecha ba'olam hazeh. Who are they talking about? Ashrecha ba'olam hazeh. The best life you can live in this world. Who are they talking about? Look one sentence earlier. Kachi darka shal Pas toichal. To just eat a plain piece of bread dipped in some salt. Bala arts tishan. Sleeping on the floor. Drinking a little bit of water. Bare bones of, of gashmias. And Chazal say, Ashrecha. Forget about Olam Abba. They'll get there. But Toyblach, Lo Olam Abba. Ashrecha ba Olam Ashrecha. That's the Chaim. You want to know the Chaim Toyvim? That's the Chaim Toyvim. So, from our perspective, we can't necessarily move to an extreme. And we have to embrace what's possible to be embraced. But not to embrace the perspective that becomes embedded within the technologies that we use, not to embrace that, and to stay focused constantly on the perspective of La'asid Lavai. And then we're able to engage in things, or with things, in a, in, a, in a productive, useful, healthy way, with boundaries, to know when yes and when not, and to know how to use these things as tools that a Kaddish Baruch Hu put into this world to help us increase our relationship with the next world. That's what Urb Nassim is encouraging here. Like all the previous generations lived, and they did just fine. Now, again, in a certain sense, they didn't do just fine because their life expectancy was about 40 years old and they had terrible plagues. And Rabbi Nachman himself encouraged, without getting into hot water here, Rabbi Nachman himself encouraged that they should take the vaccine. And he said that, you know, the, the vaccines against smallpox, whatever it was that they had back then. And, and, and Reb Nassim wasn't blind to these realities. Reb Nassim wasn't suggesting that the earlier generations lived a better life. He didn't mean that. But it means to say that the quality of life that they had, in that sense, was unparalleled. And Ramnasan's time was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So many new things were being invented. We're going to speak about some of them in a minute, actually. So many new things were being created and invented around that time period, very late 1800s, early 1900s, mid-1800s. And most of the world it hadn't reached yet. And Ramnasan says, like, what are we trying to fix exactly? Look how many more problems we're creating for ourselves. Because these technological advancements are founded on a perspective that only recognizes olamazeh, yes, we're gaining, but what else are we losing? That's the question Ramnasan is asking here. Yes, we are gaining, but what else are we potentially losing when we 
completely and entirely allow ourselves and our lives to become encompassed by the technological advancements that on the one hand improve the comfort of our lives, but also run the risk of distracting us from the world to come that has no use for these things at all. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Says Reb Nassim, and they live sweeter, more pleasant lives than all the people who are trying to fix their lifestyle. They oftentimes will be the first to tell you, no, thank you. We're better off without it. We're better off without it. To know how to set that limit. The question is what our perspective is. The question is what is our primary focus? And here Ibn says a very fascinating thing here. He says, This is a documented fact. And I'll tell you to what extent in a minute. Ibn says many, many inventors, many innovators, originators, actually suffer their demise in a way that is directly related to their work, directly related to what they invented. I had known about this because I think like I'd read about it in some context, in some book or something online at some point in the past. And so I did a quick Google search. There is an entire Wikipedia entry. You'll look it up. There's an entire Wikipedia entry that basically lists all the inventors throughout history who were killed by their own inventions. And it is a long list. It's a legitimately long list. It's surprising, but that's what Nassim is talking about here. Which is emblematic of, it's, it's ironic, tragically, ironically emblematic of the point he's trying to make. That on the one hand, you're trying to improve our lives. And on the other hand, that's the thing that's going to kill you. And so I just, I, I took a couple of examples. I had them written down here on a paper. In, 19, in, in 1903, there was a fellow, William Nelson, who figured out a way to motorize the bicycle, right? Today we have motorbikes, motorcycles. He was one of the first to come up with a manner in which you can actually motorize and put an engine essentially on a bicycle. How do you think he died? On one of his motorized bicycles, of course. And he crashed and had a terrible, terrible accident. Uh, a famous one. This is actually, I'm sure some of us are familiar with this. There was, a, there was a remarkable woman who was called Marie Curie. She was one of the pioneers in the realm of radiation. Very, very famous. I think she won two Nobel Prizes or something like that. She was an incredible, incredible lady. She for sure for, uh, won one of them. I don't know if she won two, but she was a remarkable lady. I think a Russian, if I'm not mistaken. And um, she died of radiation poisoning from what she was involved in that saved so many lives subsequently took her life. There was a fellow, William Bullock, in 18, and this is actually toward the end of Reb Nassim's life, 1867, who invented a rotary printing press, a phenomenal new way to go ahead and bring books into the world. Unfortunately, he got caught in his machinery and his printing press killed him. One more interesting one before we get to the main one I want to speak to you about, and I apologize for the morbidity here, but it is an interesting point. It is an interesting point. 
And I want to say, you know, make a, a, a clear point here of saying that Rav Nassim isn't saying nobody should invent anything because your invention is going to kill you. Like statistically, no, it won't. And it'll probably help a lot of people. It's not the point he's making. He's saying that there's, in, again, there's, a, there's, a, there's an emblematic reflection that's captured in this, that inventions kill their inventors, right? There, there's, there's, it, it, there's, a, there's a symbol there, there's a message there, there's an ironic lesson there. Thomas Andrews Jr. was the lead naval architect of the Titanic. He built the ship. Of course, you'll guess which ship he died on. He was riding the Titanic when it sunk. But listen to this last one, because this is a really fascinating, mind-blowing thing. And just, you know, the stupidity of some individuals. But there was a fellow in 1912, listen to this one. His name was Frank Reichelt. He was a, uh, Franz rather, Franz Reichelt. He was a Frenchman, and he was a tailor. And at that time, because of the developments in the realm of uh, you know, flying and all those different kinds of things, different people were testing gliders and different kinds of flying apparatus. There was many, many, many deaths from people, Rahman al-Islam, who, who plummeted and fell from very high, uh, from, from very high heights. And there was like a rush among different kinds of fabric workers to invent what we now know to be the parachute in order to help people so that they could be much safer when they were testing their flying apparatus when they, when they were you know when they were in the air and um, this tailor went ahead and invented something that uh, that that I think now we refer to as the parachute coat it was essentially something that you wear and it had all this different kinds of materials that without pulling anything or doing anything if you were to not you, but if one were to fall from a from you know from a from a sizable you know height, it would automatically open up in such a way that he would just gently uh, sink to the floor. Now this individual went ahead and he tested this on dummies, and I think that it worked maybe twice, and he had two success runs, and he was trying to do all sorts of things and manipulate the, the fabric and the fabric type and the, and this and that and the other thing. But more, much more often than not, all the dummies that he dropped were just plummeting uh, straight to the ground and it was not working at all in any way, shape, or form. In 1912, there was a certain institution, maybe a government fund or something, I don't know exactly, that put a huge, huge reward, an award out for whoever would be the one to actually go ahead and innovate because nobody was having really success in figuring out how to create this thing that would prevent people, you know, from dying and falling from 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 you know great heights. And so he went ahead and he altered the design of this parachute coat to fit the specifications in order to win this award. And he was a stuntman and he was he was trying to garner publicity. And he went ahead and he began to appeal for a permit to test this invention on the Eiffel Tower. And the reason that he did this is because he felt that all the dummies that he was dropping were dropping and not being saved by his invention because it wasn't high enough. And he felt that if he would be able to deploy something from like, you know, the Eiffel Tower, super tall, then it would clearly and demonstrably work. And he appealed and appealed and appealed and they kept on turning him down. They thought he was crazy and they refused to give him a permit. Finally, finally, they eventually issued him a permit for a dummy. He showed up the day of the, you know, the great drop 
wearing the coat himself. And it became clearly apparent to everybody that there was no dummy and that he was going to do this. And his friends tried to convince him out of it to no avail. He was set on this. Again, it wasn't even a good invention. He had no reason to believe that it would work. It, it was mamish like in a way, you know, I, I don't know if we, if, you know, they considered him to have been suicidal. Anyway, he climbs up the, uh, the Eiffel Tower and tragically this is videoed because it was a tremendous, tremendous publicity stunt, you know, and hundreds of people and tens of reporters, everybody was standing around and uh, they tried to convince him not to do it and the police got involved and he had climbed up already and he, uh, and he jumped. And it did not work, like not even a little bit, okay? And Nebuch. Right, Mamish Nebuch in front of the whole the whole Paris. This is another case of an individual whose own invention ultimately led to their demise or obsession with this invention without the kind of thinking that's oriented more toward the bigger picture. And again, this is emblematic of what Ramnasan's saying. Yes, many of these inventions do go ahead and improve our lives, but essentially they rob us of something in the process as well. That's what Abnassan says here. We don't need to speak in lengthy terms about this topic to a person who has seichel amiti. Even a little bit. True intellect. A tachlis amiti that's going to be able to help humanity develop and uncover grand truths and deep objective ideas that are rooted in revelation and not in our own sophisticated thoughts that are limited to the human mind. It's all not. And he says there's, there's, there's no end to what the possibilities are of developing this world and maybe in a certain way that is the tchum and that is that the responsibility and the position and the realm of the nations of the world to develop this worldliness. For us, as Chazal say, that they're going to claim at the end that all the roads that they made were for us. And HaKadosh Baruch is going to say, please, you did it for yourselves. You did it for yourselves, for your own comfort. Not even for your own inner life, but for the money and for the prestige that powers all the big tech, all those companies. That, that's, that's what sits at the essence of it. He says, how much does a person know in and of himself what his capacity to see leads him to, leads her to? How miserable our capacity to see can make us, potentially. If we use it to look at things we shouldn't look at. If we use it to look at other people's lives and become jealous about what they have. If we use it to, to read you know, terrible news. If we use our own senses to focus too seriously on this world without knowing the secret of closing our eyes, of shutting our ears, of sh closing our mouths, and tapping into the silence of life. 
מכל שכן שאין צורך לחפש עוד אחר כלים חדשים בתחבול ישראל למזל ההרבה כבוד הממון ושאר תבויסיו. If we're miserable enough with the eyes that are outfitted naturally and the ears that we have, why are we trying to increase our ability to utilize these things? It's not enough for you to read the local news and be miserable about that. Now you have to carry the weight of the entire world on your shoulders, right? And that's, that's just one example. It's not enough for you to use your eyes to look to see what your neighbor has and get jealous of what, you know, the car that they have in their driveway. Instead, you have to scroll down Facebook constantly and see everybody's vacation and everybody's eating out and everybody's, you know, uh, promotion. It's not enough. It's not, the misery is not enough. That's called a Chaim Tovim. Tell me, that's called a Chaim Tovim. That now you have a Facebook and now you have access to enhance our natural draw toward making ourselves miserable by becoming obsessed with this worldliness. That's the Chaim Tovim. Says Reb Nassim, that's not, that's not called Chaim Tovim. It's not the Chaim Tovim. Why do we need to do this? So why do we need to search after new ways of enhancing our ability to increase the capacities that oftentimes make us miserable? and distract us from the truth. He says all of their focus in developing all of these developments are called who? It's all about this world. It's all about this world. It could be utilized to become a keli for something holy, but at its essence, it's built on a, on a shaky foundation, on a rotten core. Don't increase the prestige and money. Maybe there's some good intention there. But at the end of the day, how could there be perfectly pure intention when a person like Mark Zuckerberg just last week loses, I think, $36 billion and it doesn't even make a dent? Like, how could there really be this desire to just help humanity? Give me a break. Is there some level of that? I'm sure he's, you know, on some level, a kind-hearted spirit who wants to help the world develop and connect people. But at the root of it, how could, how could it possibly be built on, on altruism, on kindness, on objectivity? How could that be? How rare is it, especially nowadays, because of the technology, because of the way in which this world has become a pretty comfortable place to live, so that we no longer need to contact Hashem as often as previous generations did, because we simply have less to daven about, frankly. And we simply have become convinced that if we can, can have solved so many of the problems that previous generations suffered from, just imagine how our own efforts in the future are going to be able to, you know, round out any of the, uh, uh, the sharp edges so that we will have done it for ourselves. How rare is it to find a person who can break out of this distraction, who can break out of this delusion and illusion to shut the phone consciously. We speak about this. To leave certain social media things that are just, they're pointless. They're totally and entirely pointless and they do not make us happy. In the name of entertainment, they make us miserable and they make big tech very rich. How rare is it to find the person who can turn away from the echo 
and who can focus his entire mind and heart not on this worldly comfort, but who can embrace the of a lifestyle that's the true Chaim Tovim, untethered from the awesome technological advancements that we can plug in in so many different ways, but that can also bind our hands with those very wires. How rare is it? To spend time thinking about what are we here for? Not about how comfortable can we make our stay here and become obsessed with that. That's ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous because you'll have spent your entire life trying to make your life more comfortable without thinking why you have a life in the first place. What's going to be with me? Why am I here? This is our inheritance. And my grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather all the way back through thousands of generations in every single conceivable circumstance were individuals who bound their lives to this, to this unique mode of existing, to this unique value system that had a different definition for the Chaim Toivim. This is our Torah. This is our inheritance. That's a wisdom rooted not in our own ideas, but rooted in revelation from, a, from an objective space, a message from a realm beyond, from the designer of this realm, encouraging us not to get caught up in the koach hamachriach, which is and to utilize technology in as much as it's going to aid that essential why. And not to turn the how, what, where, and when into the why in and of themselves. Like the Salonim Rebbe said, there's nothing as dark as a small light. There's nothing as dark as a small light. Because darkness in and of itself gives off the clear impression that it's darkness and it's not pleasant. And so we're going to seek a way out. But when we have found a small light and we suffice with that, that can distract us in a much greater way from the great light that we're striving for. And so we run the risk in this world of beginning to consider the how, what, where, and when of this world to be the why, that becomes our motivation. And we devote ourselves to this and we spend all of our time on that, forgetting the big light, the true why. This is it. This is why we're in this world, to learn as much as we can, to daven as much as we can, to do chesed as much as we can, to become more kind, to become more focused, to become more elevated, to become more deep, to become more broad, broad-minded. To tap into that eternal life, not just in the world to come, in this world. 
There's nothing sweeter. There's no greater chayim toivim than this. If we'll open up to it, tamu, taste uru ki toiv Hashem. It's an interesting thing, it just occurred to me. I don't know of any technological enhancement of taste. I could be wrong, but it seems to me that we've found ways of enhancing our ears to listen to things that come from a long, far away, enhancing our sight, glasses that I'm wearing, telescopes, you know, binoculars. We have a megaphone to magnify our our sound that we make, but I don't know of any technology that enhances taste or smell, these two things. It's an interesting thing. These are senses like all the others, right? Technology that we can, you know, put on our nose or something that can increase our smell, uh, whatever. You know, some people are outfitted with, uh, you know, a uh, more prominent nose than others. That's, uh, that's also fine. But the taste also, I don't think there's anything that you can do for your tongue that would enhance taste, make it more powerful. I could be wrong. This would be something interesting to look into. And I'm sure there are people trying to work on it if it doesn't exist. But smell and taste are unique because they're the real thing. They're the real thing. Taste and smell are also unique in that they linger. An echo will linger, but only so much. But you can smell an esrog box. That one sook has had an esrog in it 15 years ago, and it'll still smell like that esrog. Taste becomes infused within vessels. Tam, tam ke'ikr, all the sugyas in Esr Taste and smell linger. They're eternal. They're neshama-oriented. Eze, right? What Chazal say, call a neshama It's talking about neshima. To smell a breath that we take with our nostrils. It's a tainuk that the neshama's nenes from. The neshama enjoys it. And taste is very deep also. Tamu uru kitoy vashem. So it's these two things, it's interesting, that are connected to eternality in the sense that they linger, that they remain. It's very connected without getting into the depth now. So we have to, two minutes left. It's very connected to Adar. Adar is the month that's associated with the nose. Mordechai, Chazal say, is rooted in Maridachi, which is a spice, a smell. Of course, Esther's name was Hadassah. All these things are very, very related one with the other. And that's why Purim is Lanetzach, Chuasam Hayisa Lanetzach. It's eternal because it's related to smell, which lingers. And that's why Chazal say whoever wants that his asex should be Niskayim, that whatever you're doing should have a lasting longevity, should do it in the month of Adar, because Adar is related to smell, and smell is something that lingers. So all these things are connected certainly to the time period that we find ourselves in. But it's these two things that have avoided technological advancement. Because they are eternal in and of themselves. And that's the Pasuk. That's the sense that Chazal tell us, Tamu uru kitoiv Hashem. Taste and see that Hashem is good. Without any apparatus. Don't use earphones. Don't use a, a megaphone and, you know, to daven. And, and don't use binoculars to see Him. Taste it. It's the real thing. You know, they have a, an expression in Hebrew, Tam ha-miti. You know, the, the real taste. You know, it's the real deal. Taste is the real deal. Smelling is associated with purity. Mashiach is connected to the concept of Mashiach is connected. The Pasuk says he's going to have this incredible sense of smell, smell and taste. 
They both linger. They're both connected to longevity, to eternality. And they both have avoided technology. And there's a message there as well. You see how much comes down in the moment? I didn't prepare for that. But in the Siyat HaDashmai in this year, it's crazy what, what comes down. It's, it's like unbelievable Chiddush in the context of, of learning together. It's, it's awesome. It's just awesome, you know, to be able to experience that together. What a privilege. That's what Reb Nassim is telling us over here. This is the Toiv La Toiv HaNitzchi. La Oilam Shekulay Aruch V'Toiv. To really tap into the good life. To the eternally good, eternal goodness. This is called true wisdom. The true wisdom is the quote unquote anti wisdom. Means to say, where I'm able to put my own ideas aside and open up with tmimus, pshita, simplicity, humility to ideas that come from beyond. Just beyond. Not just beyond my own mind beyond all minds. This is called true Chachma. Ki Yisrael, oivrim akal ha-chachma shalahem. Am Yisrael, we just avoid, we skip over that whole bizarre obsession with this world. And we're able to just hop, skip, and, you know, just jump over. Kainam roitzim lachar klal bi'inine olam agashmi. I don't care about science. Of course I care about science because in as much as science is able to help me and science is able to develop my capacity to engage with my purpose, I care deeply about science and I'm fascinated with it and I find Hashem in it. But essentially, I don't devote my life to science. I can't. I can't. I'm only in this world for 70, 80, 90 years. I owe to 120. I don't have time to waste on that kind of thing. Certainly not to spend every waking moment obsessed with this worldliness, with this fleeting world. I can't risk that. I can't. I, I just don't have enough time. It's like Chazal say, you want to study Greek philosophy? Good. Find a time that's that's not day and not night and you can study Greek philosophy, right? Because the Pasuk says, I don't have enough time. If I had 14 days in my week, maybe I could devote half the week to you know learning and teaching and, and writing and, and all and that. Then I can devote half the week to all the wonderful things that I'd love to explore on Wikipedia. Right? If, I, if I had 14 days, but guess what? I only have seven days in my week and I only have a limited number of weeks in a month and a limited number of months in a year and only so many years. I should live long and happy till 120. So I, I just don't have time for that. Not because I look down on it or those that do, but I don't, right? That's called Chachma Be'emes. Halavai at the end of the day that we never would have heard of a thing called Facebook. Even with all the ta'elas that it, that, it, that it gives to us, and I'm using that as a mushal again, it's a million mishalim, it's a thousand things. All these things that ostensibly improve our lives, halavai, we, we never would have heard of it. Halavai, we could grow up you know, in some Amish town, you know, something like that, where we can live a chayim tovim, a life of simplicity. Halavai, that we can have homes where technology is, is, is limited to certain times, certain places, certain experiences, so that we can foster human connection, so that we can foster the Chaim Tovim that's connected to eternality that stretches beyond this limited world, Halavai. Okay, we don't have time to finish this piece like I suspected. Be'ez Hashem, next time we'll finish this teaching and then we'll, we'll really start moving. But you can see, again, how many words did we learn from Sicha Nanav? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right? Nine words, and we can spend hours. It, it's everything. We're just getting started. So thank you so much for joining. I hope that you enjoyed.
and wishing you a phenomenal rest of your week. And Be'ezer Hashem, hopefully we're going to pick up on Thursday night with our Parsha Shir. Okay, thank you so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed. Ashrenu. Ashrenu, Mamish. Thank you so, so much, Hever. Thank you, Kaltov.